screen. The world is what happens when people repeatedly give into their flesh and then those base animalistic desires become normalized in culture. That's what we're talking about. So it's no longer, so, so, so in terms, so this takes it to like another level. It scales it like, like uh, I mean, to, you know, to huge proportions when it, when it, 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 because when we're talking about the flesh, it's just those base desires that live in you that you're trying to, to, to fight and you're trying to, to, uh, to resist. But, but now what, we, what we're seeing is that those, those sort of base level desires that exist in you and exist in others are becoming normal, normal, normalized in the greater secular uh, society. Over time, it just becomes the way things are, right? Well, it's just, the way, it's just the way things are. The disordered becomes the normative. Sin is recast as anything but sin, right? It's recast as freedom, human rights, Reproductive justice, love is love, the way things are, nature, science, boys will be boys, anything but sin, right? That's, it's just recast as anything but sin. And as a result, much of what our generation calls culture now, previous generations going all the way back to Jesus, simply called the world. Simply called the world. And this, I believe, has had an effect on our moral and our spiritual reasoning, our, our ability to determine sometimes right and wrong. I mean, when there's so much that is normal and accepted and allowed, uh, it, it can be very difficult to distinguish like what is God and what is not. Uh, it, and it affects our ability to reason with these things on a moral level and on a spiritual level. Hey, we are in a teaching series. Uh, it's week seven of the three enemies of the soul. And if you haven't been with us, we've defined those three enemies as the devil, the flesh, and the world. Now, just to be clear, um, this concept is not original uh, with Pastor Josh and myself. You know, uh, we did not just kind of pull together our collective experience and come up with this concept. It actually is a concept that uh, that has been passed down from our spiritual ancestors. It goes all the way back to the first century, early followers of Jesus, and those who followed over the last two thousand years have have all. Uh, held uh, th- this awareness that the three enemies to the soul are the devil, the flesh, and the world. In, in recent times, all three of those words have kind of fallen out of the conversation. You know, like, like a lot of people, uh, more, more so now than ever, would, would maybe say they struggle to even believe that there's a real devil or you know, this whole idea of the flesh, like what is that? And, and the same could be said of the world. And so we've spent some extensive amount of time really looking at that first great enemy of our soul, the devil. And uh, we spent some time looking at the, the flesh as well, the second enemy of our soul. Today we're going to look at the world. We're going to start the third section of this series and, and look uh, specifically at the world. I brought a book up here with me just, um, just, just to recommend it as a resource. The first, um, it's broken up into multiple parts. The first three chapters really speak of... Uh, some of the things we talked about in terms of the, the, the devil and the flesh and the kind of the forces uh, of evil that at work in the world, it's uh, by uh, Rich Villadas. He's an, uh, an author, a pastor in New York, but uh, the book is called Good and Beautiful and Kind. I'd recommend you pick it up. Uh, so we're going to look at the, the third section of this series today uh, called uh, The World. So back in the year 2000, during the uh, MTV Video Music Awards, uh, a guy by the name of Sean Fanning, who was the co-founder of Napster, he shows up on stage wearing a Metallica t-shirt. Anybody remember this? And uh, the host, Carson Daly, asks Sean Fanning where he got his t-shirt, to which Sean replies and says, 
a friend of mine shared it with me. Now, this was a huge moment. And the backstory to this, to this uh, iconic moment is that a few months prior, uh, the, the heavy metal rock band Metallica had been in the studio recording the song, I Disappear, for the Mission Impossible soundtrack. They wake up one morning to find their song being played on the radio all across the country. Right? The only problem with that is that their song uh, isn't done yet. Right? It hasn't been mixed properly. It's not finished. Somebody stole it, and, and uh, they released it completely unfinished into the digital stratosphere. Right? This was a major, major moment. This is kind of like the, the early sort of bleeding edge of the tech, uh, of the tech boom, right? And, and so nothing like this had really ever, ever happened before. Well, as you can imagine, law enforcement gets involved, and they trace the theft all the way back to the then previously unheard of fledgling file-sharing company called Napster, Right? And uh, interestingly enough, the song, I Disappear, was not the only thing that was stolen. Metallica's entire catalog was stolen and made available for download on Napster all for free. And thus began, right, as you can imagine, one of the most infamous street fights in music history. Uh, you know, uh, Metallica would go on to file a lawsuit against Napster for copyright infringement and for racketeering to the tune of $10 million dollars. Um, and they would win easily, as you can imagine, right? They had an open and shut case. Interestingly enough, and kind of the reason why I'm bringing up the story, is because even though they won the case, they would lose significantly in terms of the court of public opinion. Like most of the general public sided with Napster, and at least had a, like, a, like a, an understanding of why they did it, had a soft spot in their heart uh, towards Napster. Napster's case was basically like, look, uh, Metallica is filthy rich, we're poor college students, you know, we can't afford to buy the album, uh, we'll pay for it later, what's the big deal with us skimming a little bit off the top, you know, like, like they can afford it. Metallica's case was, it doesn't matter if you're stealing from the rich or the poor, uh, stealing is illegal and it's wrong, right? So that was, that was the, the idea. I tell you this story because this whole thing uh, created like, like, a, like a cultural uh, phenomenon, uh, and and, and just, just to be clear, though, I mean, all of this debate going back and forth, like, um, like th th this was not an issue of, like, there being, like, a moral gray area here, okay? Like, like there, you know, it, th there was no, like, controversy or debate at the moral level, you know? Like, Napster wasn't Robin Hood here, you know? They weren't, like, like... You know, even they tried to position their, their business model that way. Like, they weren't, like, really, like, Robin Hood stealing from the rich to give to the poor. They ended up selling Napster for, like, $121 million. So, like, it wasn't like, like they were just these, these guys, you know, doing this out of the goodness of their heart, right? So, so you know, along, along the lines of, 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 of this being, like, 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 a moral gray area, it wasn't that in terms of it being right or wrong. Stealing has always been wrong. It's always been bad, right? I mean, every, every culture that sociologists have ever studied, like this has sort of been a moral taboo, the moral baseline basically for people living together in community, a little bit of like ethics 101. And so, so this issue between Metallica and Napster created sort of like this, this, this wild fire. And it sprung like the anti-piracy ads that many of you would remember from the early 2000s that played before every movie that you would watch at the theater or every movie that you would rent. The ads would be like super cheesy, and you remember them? Like they'd start with like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't steal a car, you know, you wouldn't steal the purse, you wouldn't, you wouldn't steal a TV, and then it would be followed by the slogan, piracy, you know? It's a crime. Do you remember that? So this was sort of like kindergarten level ethics, 
Uh, but, but regardless, the commercials played before every movie for years. Why? Why, why did it spring, did this issue between Napster and Metallica create this movie that, that sort of sprung this, this ad campaign that made it clear to people what piracy was, why it was wrong, all those things? Well, here's, here's why, if you're, if you're taking notes. It kind of brings us to our, our, our first thought. The reason why is because even though legally and ethically right and wrong were crystal clear, still most people moved the moral line to make piracy socially acceptable. That's what had happened. So if you remember, Napster, Napster quickly became this sort of cultural phenomenon amongst young people. The alternative option to Napster was LimeWire. Some of you guys might have, might have uh, uh, you know, I'm looking for like my early 2000s people. Okay, so... Uh, where you could basically download like, like music or movies all for free. And so, and so it began this cultural phenomenon amongst young people. It spread like wildfire where they would download music, burn the album onto a CD, or burn the movie onto a DVD. How many of y'all ever had like a burned DVD or CD, you know, with like, with like the album name, the band name, or the movie name written in Sharpie marker? Anybody remember that? Yeah. Yeah, that was like a huge thing. Or I mean, I had the binder with all the, the discs that you would flip through. Remember, that was like a humongous thing. Okay, so uh, I remember in the early 2000s being in college, and I remember um, I had the opportunity to host uh, Christian artist uh, Jeremy Camp for the day. I got to pick him up from the airport, uh, hang out with him, take him to, to dinner, uh, make sure he, he arrived at the venue for the concert, uh, hung out with him afterwards at his merch table, uh, there when he was doing autographs, and I'll never forget this moment. This young, young kid uh, walked up to him with a burned CD of his album on it and wanted him to sign his autograph on it, right? And, and I just remember, like, this is like early 2000. I remember Jeremy Camp looking at him, like, super confused, like, come on, man, like, like don't you know this isn't, this isn't right? And he goes ahead and still signs his autograph on this, this burned, uh, burned CD. So if you were in high school or college or just like kind of, kind of, kind of a, an early adapter to sort of the, the bleeding edge of technology back then, uh, didn't it sure seem like everybody was doing this? It seemed like everybody was doing this. Um, why? Why did it feel like everybody was doing this? Well, it felt like everyone was doing this because literally everybody was doing this, right? And the reason why everyone was doing this, again, is because the moral line had been moved. The moral line had changed. I remember so many people not thinking anything of this. And if you were to suggest to them, hey, this might, this might be a little ethically not okay. It might be a little morally wrong to be like pirating, you know, like, like, like music and movies. Like they would get so mad. Did you ever have anybody ever just get mad at you if you suggested anything? Maybe you were the one who got mad, you know? Um, you know, they would say things like, who are you to, who are you to judge us? Like this, everybody's doing this, right? Here, here's, here's what was happening. From, from a cultural perspective, again, here's a thought that you can look at. Within a few short months, people were living in a new moral ecosystem where judging your friends for burning CDs was seen as wrong, but stealing was now seen as perfectly fine. So things had shifted radically in a short amount of time where before people had been like, man, that's totally not okay. Now something had, had happened. It'd become this like phenomenon in culture and people had moved the moral line to now make it acceptable. Right and wrong had been redefined along the lines of popular opinion. Right and wrong had been redefined along the lines of, of popular desire. And in a few short years, right, that moral line had changed. It had moved. It had been pushed further back. So what's the point in me drudging up the early 2000s sins of our past? Right? Well, the point is that this is a very benign, yet I think a great example of what Jesus 
and the New Testament writers repeatedly refer to as the world, right? And so today we begin the third category in this series, right? Our fight with the world, our fight with the world. So how exactly does Napster help explain this third enemy of our soul? Well, let me explain by just kind of taking us back to to some of the the early weeks in this series where we kind of laid out, I guess, the thesis or kind of the overarching thought of this series, which was that there are deceptive ideas that are, that are uh, brought by the devil, right? We, we talked early on in this series that the devil is the one who traffics in deceptive lies. So there are deceptive ideas that are put forth by the devil that then play to uh, disordered ideas or the flesh, right? He doesn't, just, he doesn't just spin lies that don't mean anything to you. He's not just spinning lies to you like, hey, Elvis is still alive or, you know, Kennedy, you know, uh, you know who really killed, you know, killed, killed Kennedy or who shot the sheriff or whatever it is. So, the, 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 lies, the lies are real. Like they play to something inside of you that like you, you really are being pulled towards. That, that, you're, that you're, your base sort of primal desires really want to be given over to. And so the, there are deceptive ideas put forth by the devil that play to these disordered ideas. And then uh, those disordered ideas become normal in a sinful society. That's what we're talking about. That's what the world is. So when it comes to the world... What does Jesus have to say about this, right? Like, that's, that's a really important thing. Like, like when, we, when we look at, at, at issues of our day, when we look at what's going on around us, when we look at challenges we're facing internally and externally, we really got to, like, like, boil it all down to, like, what does Jesus have to say? And so Jesus has some pretty profound thoughts to say in terms of the world. Perhaps his best-known comment on the world comes from Luke 9, 25, where he says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self or his own soul, other translations. So this is a warning from Jesus to not fall under the spell of the world, right? To don't don't fall for its tricks. Yet Jesus saw the world as more than just a temptation to avoid. He saw it as a threat to be on guard against, to be on your guard against, to like recognize what's really going on, to not fall victim to it. He says this in John 15, uh, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So this is Jesus Speaking about the world, a topic that would become a major theme in his teachings, especially if you read the Gospels, you know that to be true. Um, And here what he's doing is he's warning his apprentices that the world, which would eventually crucify him, would treat them similarly. That there is this hostile relationship between Jesus and the world, and now between his followers and the world as well, right? So... This makes a lot of sense if you start to follow Jesus' logic. Look at this thought with me. Jesus saw the world as under the rule of the devil, not God, and saw his upcoming death and resurrection as the freedom of humanity from the devil's reign. So let me just kind of show that to you in Scripture, give you one more example. This is where Jesus is praying to the Father on the night before he would go to the cross, and he says these words. He says in John 17, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. 
So he's talking about his apprentices, right? My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So again, like Jesus saw the world as under the rule of the devil, not God. He saw his upcoming death and resurrection as this opportunity to sort of free humanity from the devil's reign. Goes on in verse 16, says, they are not of the world. Talking about his followers, right? Even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So what you see here is something really interesting. That in spite of Jesus' hostile relationship, right, with, with, uh, with the world, um, his intention was never for his followers, his disciples, to sort of abdicate their responsibilities in the world. Jesus isn't a monk, right? He's not hiding out in a cave. You know, he does go out into the desert, like, like for some silence and solitude and to be away with God. But what happens? He returns. That's the template. So Jesus is not asking God to remove us from the world, right? He's, he's asking that God would protect us instead from the evil one. That there is a very real reality out there that opposes uh, there is in stark contrast and in opposition to the, to the way of Jesus. And, and the answer for Jesus wasn't that we would just be removed from this challenge, that, right, that we, would, we would all just maybe kind of have this, this community where like no outsiders are allowed in. But instead, he, he says at the end, as, as the Father sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world as well. That that's his, his idea. That's his, his template. The Apostle John then goes on to give us a, a really insightful warning about the world and its gravitational pull on our heart's desires. In 1 John chapter 2, this is a really key passage. Catch this. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Really powerful thought. And so what you see here between Jesus and John and there's other places in the New Testament is that, is that the world is a, is, is a central idea in the New Testament that begins with Jesus and continues all the way to the end, all the way to the book of Revelation. But what does it actually mean? Like what? Let's make sure like we're talking about the same thing. What do we mean when we speak of the world as one of the great enemies of our soul? What exactly did Jesus and John and the New Testament writers mean when they talk about the flesh? Like that's really important that we determine that and set that as sort of a baseline before we go even uh, much, much further. So the Greek word that's used here over and over and over again in the New Testament for the world is the word cosmos, right? Cosmos. So similar to the Greek word for the flesh that we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, it has multiple meanings. So cosmos is used more than one time. It's used multiple times and in different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it just means the universe, or more specifically, it means planet Earth. So there are times where uh, this same Greek word is being used to refer to the world, and it's, but it's specifically referring to planet Earth, right, or, or the universe. Now, that's certainly not our enemy, right? Planet Earth is not our enemy, right? We understand that. There's another way this word is used, and it's used to refer to humanity. It's, remember the iconic line in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, right? That's the same word. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So, so sometimes this word is used to refer specifically to humanity. Well, humanity is not our enemy either, okay? So, so we're not up against a fight against humanity or up against a fight with planet Earth or Mother Earth, right? 
there is a third sense of the word, a third way it's used, and it's, 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 it's this way it's used that, that we uh, understand our fight with the three enemies of our soul, the devil, the flesh, and the world. Um, and it's here on the screen. We understand the world in this sense to mean the systems of practices and standards associated with secular society. So it's a system, it's practices, it's standards associated with a secular society. So we talked about earlier in this series, you may remember um, that a secular society is one that attempts to live as if there is no God, right? That's what a secular society is. And so the world, in, in, in the way we're understanding this in terms of being a, an enemy to our soul, is, is that it's a system of practices and standards associated with attempting to live as if there is no God. So uh, let me give you a few more thoughts on this. Um, uh, theologian Cornelius Plantinga, he says this about the world, that the world is a culture, uh, the pattern of beliefs, social norms, dispositions, and values that are institutionalized in a people's collective life. A really, really good thought. Uh, philosopher, theologian, author, uh, Dallas Willard, uh, he says the world is our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. Really good thought. Uh, Gary Brashears, another theologian, he says the world is Satan's domain where his authority and values reign. Though his deception makes that hard to realize, if you are of the world, then it all seems right. Okay. Really, really, really important thought right there. So let's define it ourselves. Let's, let's, give, let's set a baseline for our understanding of what the world is uh, so that we can be on the same page this week and next. The world, how we're going to define it, is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually ins institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Okay, that's what the world is. So the twin sins that I'm referring to, uh, we talked about earlier in this series in Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden, when Satan or the devil, he tempts Adam and Eve, uh, and his temptation uh, towards them was basically two parts, right? It, it, was, it was first rebellion against God. He, they were tempted to rebel against God, to seize autonomy from God, to try to live life apart from God. So that's the first part of the temptation in the garden was, was rebellion from God. The second part was the redefinition of good and evil, right? So that, that's the twin sins, right, that we're talking about here in terms of understanding what the world is. It's it's when these things are institutionalized in a culture, rebelling against God and redefining what good and evil really are based on the disordered desires of our heart. So if you think about it, the world is what happens when Adam and Eve's sin goes viral and spreads through a society to the point that rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil become the status quo. Okay? I, I, is, this, is this not the status quo right now? Okay, it is. It's what we see going on around us. Look at this thought uh, on the screen. The world is what happens when people repeatedly give in to their flesh and then those base animalistic desires become normalized in culture. That's what we're talking about. So it's no longer, so, so, so in terms, so this takes it to like another level. It scales it like, like uh, I mean, to, you know, to huge proportions when it, when it, 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 because when we're talking about the flesh, it's just those base desires that live in you that you're trying to, to, to fight and you're trying to, to, uh, to resist. But, but now what, we, what we're seeing is that those, those sort of base-level desires that exist in you and exist in others are becoming normal, normal, normalized in the greater secular uh, society. Over time, it just becomes the way things are, right? 
Well, it's just the way, it's just the way things are. The disordered becomes the normative. Sin is recast as anything but sin, right? It's recast as freedom, human rights, reproductive justice, love is love, the way things are, nature, science, boys will be boys, anything but sin, right? That's, it's just recast as anything but sin. And as a result, much of what our generation calls culture now, previous generations going all the way back to Jesus, simply called the world. Simply called the world. And this, I believe, has had an effect on our moral and our spiritual reasoning, our, our ability to determine sometimes right and wrong. I mean, when there's so much that is normal and accepted and allowed, uh, it, it can be very difficult to distinguish, like, what is God and what is not. Uh, and, and it affects our ability to reason with these things on a moral level and on a spiritual level. In 19, in, in, uh, I'm sorry, in 1774, there was a very popular book called The Sorrows of Young Werther. And all you really need to know about this book is that it was a pretty shocking read in its day, mostly due to the fact that the hero in the story tragically committed suicide. Now, I know that that's a little bit of a spoiler, but I figured that since it's been around since 1774, you've had ample time to read the book, right? So, as a result of this book, like a strange phenomenon began to happen. Uh, People started to read it, and as a result, many people began committing suicide all across Europe. It was almost as if suicide was behaving like a contagious disease. As a result, like many countries actually banned this book. It wasn't allowed to be sold. It wasn't allowed to be read. People had to burn the book. The phenomena that happened, uh, you know, in the 1700s with the book, uh, The Sorrows of Young Werther, really speaks to an emerging field of research by social psychologists called social contagions. Social contagions. And uh, the classic example of this is yawning, right? You, you, ever, you ever seen this happen? Like what happens when you yawn or when somebody else yawns Right next to you, you yawn, right? That's just, that's just this is a well-documented phenomenon that if, if someone is next to you and they, and they yawn, like you will just about always yawn yourself. This is true of things like shivering. If someone's cold, it's true of, of things like smiling. If they're smiling, it's gonna put, you know, cause you to likely smile. But not only is this true of physical behaviors, it's also true of moral behaviors as well is what they have found out. So things like smoking or not smoking, like if, if, so if you're around a group of people who are like, yeah, this is what we do, we smoke, like, then, then mo- a lot of people will just go along with that as well. Same is true if people choose not to smoke. Eating healthy or eating junk food. Uh, social drinking or alcoholism, right? Like it, it, it's just how it goes. Being civil and nice and kind or rude. These all kind of can, can point back to social contagions in many ways. What they have found is that if you're taking notes, pretty much any behavior has the potential to spread through a society person to person, and it behaves oddly like a disease. So the example here is like monkey see, monkey do, you know? Like that it, it, it's, it's, it's the idea that there is this herd mentality literally woven into our brains. And so the point that I'm trying to make right here is this. It's that this is often how the devil's deceptive ideas keep such a stronghold on societies for so long. Think about it. I want it, and everybody's doing it, have overwhelming power by themselves, but put them together, and they are almost impossible to resist. So I want it really speaks to the flesh, right? It speaks to the disordered, disordered ideas of our heart. It speaks to our flesh. So that's, that's that everybody's doing it speaks to the world. When you put those two things together, it's almost impossible to resist. This is why uh, 
Renee uh, DeResta, the technical research manager at Stanford, says, if you can make it trend, you make it true. If you make it trend, you make it true. But I think, I think there's a lot of you in here who understand, like, that's actually not a true statement. Like, the, wide, the widespread acceptance of an idea or behavior does not necessarily make it true, even though it's widespread. Even, even though, like, the majority are good with it, that doesn't necessarily make it true much less cause it to lead to human flourishing in any way. If history teaches us anything, it's that, it's that the majority is often wrong, right? I mean, that, we, should, we should learn from history, right? The majority is often wrong. Eugene Peterson, uh, pastor, theologian, the guy who wrote the, um, the message translation of the Bible, this is what he says. He says, crowds lie. The more people, the less truth. The more people, the less truth. To which the Apostle Paul famously says from two millennia ago in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that we become like the relationships we cultivate and the culture to which we belong. And this is especially important for us as followers of Jesus who are trying to stay true to his way. Tozer says this, he says, the cause of all of our human Miseries is a radical moral dislocation. A radical moral dislocation. He goes on to talk about how, especially in the secular progressive West, we no longer get our bearings from God. And so this moral dislocation that he's talking about, it speaks to the old moral absolutes, you know, that have been uh, called into question in, in like recent times. And as a result, the new authority is the authentic self. I've spent some time talking about that a few weeks ago. So the, uh, the, the, the external authority that, that used to be true, used to be commonplace from things like, like leaders and rulers and, and things like parents and things like the Bible and God, like external authority that we would like listen to. Now the new authority is the authentic self, defined as desire and feelings. And what has happened is that we've now completely lost any sense of direction other than going off of our own internal emotions, which we all know frequently leads us astray. Theo Hobson, in his book, Reinventing Liberal Christianity, he says this, he says, what was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. Those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Right? So think about, think about things like sexuality, or abortion, or divorce, or greed. This is essentially what the book of Ephesians calls the ways of the world, as opposed to the way of Jesus, or what Paul calls the wisdom of this world in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 19. Uh, look what he says. He says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Such a powerful thought. Such a powerful thought. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that there is a way that the world thinks is wise. Right? There's a way that the world thinks that is wise and smart and cunning and clever, but it's the wisdom of this world that does not have the perspective of God in eternity, and so it is foolishness in his sight. Now, to be clear, like, I mean, Paul isn't saying that everything people value or care about is bad. That's not what he's getting at here in this scripture. In fact, many things that people value, even in our secular society, are good, are wonderful, are things that, that uh, 
uh, you know, that we should, we should value as well. Paul also did not mean to suggest that there is no wisdom to be found outside of the Christian subculture. That's not what he's saying. Here is what he is saying, okay? He's saying that there are some cultural norms that many people value, promote, celebrate, and parade that God has a radically different take on. And we would be wise to slow down to honestly seek out Jesus' wisdom on the moral issues of our day. That's what Paul is saying here, right? He's saying that like there's a lot going on in our world that, that many people promote, that many people value, that they parade and all that stuff. And, and, and the reality is God is radically opposed to those things. And so you and I, like we would be wise so that we're not swept up in the spirit of the age. We would be wise to slow down, to try to get in tune with God, to figure out what he has to say on the moral issues of our day. And I can tell you right now that if we were to do this, we would find some jarring differences between Jesus and both the right and the left's vision of human flourishing. We would. Like, like massive differences. A theologian and missionary, Leslie uh, Newbegin, he was a great thinker in the 1970s on post-Christianity. He predicted back then, or maybe even prophesied is the right way to put it, that as the West secular, secularized, religion would not go away, but it would redirect to politics. He warned of the rise of political religions back in the 1970s. We're living in his vision right now. Our nation is more divided than it's been since the Civil War. Right and left are no longer two opposing sides that keep each other in balance, but they are two rival religions locked in a type of holy war. David Brooks says this, he says, over the last half century, we've turned politics from a practical way to solve common problems into a cultural arena to display resentments. Big thought. And what Brooks noticed here was how people have imported a religious-like devotion and frenzy onto politics. That's what he gets into here. How it's, it's like, it's like, it's like a, a religious-like devotion, how, how, how people take this. It's, it's what the, uh, the Economist, uh, the publication and website, calls America's New Religious War. What they call it's what, it's what they, they coined it, America's new religious war. And so here, here's what I want you to see, okay? Is that in this political craze, so many people have been taken taking captive to ideology, which is a form of idolatry. A growing number of people are now more loyal to their ideology or political party than they are to Jesus and his teachings. And tragically, this has taken a lot of people into territory that is outside the kingdom of God. And so this is what I would just say to all of that, is that, is that I, I, and again, I don't know where you fall in that spectrum. I think it matters that we talk about this. What I, what I would tell you is that I think that followers of Jesus need to get back to the reality that baptism is their primary pledge of allegiance. Baptism is their primary pledge of allegiance. You see, contempt has zero place in the heart of those who claim to follow Jesus. It, it has zero place. There's, there's no room for that in, in, in the lives of those who are followers of Jesus. The litmus test of our faith is the degree to which we love our enemy. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so when I think of the world and what's going on around us right now, what's going on around us in a, in a very progressive, secularized society, I think of the famous words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 
Woe to those who call good evil, or evil good and good evil. It's really fascinating. This is a really fascinating thought. The word woe here is, a, is an interesting word to use. Like it's a word we don't use a whole lot. It's a kind of an old-fashioned word. Like when was the last time you said woe to somebody? You know? Like it doesn't, it's not one that we use. You might be surprised to learn that it's really not actually a word. It's just a vocal expression of emotion. Woe. Think of when we say the word, oh, right? That's the positive version of the expression. It's the way we express positive emotions when, when unexpected good things happen. Woe is the negative expression. Okay, so you have, oh, and then you have, woe. Woe is the negative expression. It's the sigh of the heart. Right? Stay with me here. I know you got a little distraction. But, oh, is the positive expression when unexpected good happens. Woe is the negative, exp- negative expression, and it's, it's really the sigh of the heart. And for most of my life, I tell you that, like, because I've, I've, you know, I've been in church my whole life. I've been a pastor for a lot of years now, and, and I've read this verse. Like, most of you are familiar with this verse in Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Like, I've read this verse, like, a like hundred times. And most often when I've read this verse, I've, 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 I've read it or I've, I've, I've kind of interpreted it in my soul through the voice of like a, like a fiery, you know, sort of uh, hellfire brimstone preacher. You know, woe to those who call, you know, evil good and good evil. But the more I spend time around the Father, the more I spend time around the Son and the Spirit and experience their love and compassion, the more I hear this verse in the tone of a weeping parent, not an angry preacher. Oh, to those who call evil good and good evil. And I can only imagine what God's emotional response is to the redefinition of good and evil in our society. I can only imagine. Oh, whoa, the sigh of the heart. It's a weeping parent. I can only imagine what God's emotional response is is to this redefinition of good and evil in our society, a society where lust has been redefined. Marriage is no longer a covenant of lifelong fidelity, but a contract for personal fulfillment. Divorce is now seen as an act of courage and authenticity rather than the breaking of vows. The objectification of women's sexuality through pornography is seen by some as female empowerment. Radical, radical change. Sexual identity and gender fluidity have become widespread acceptable norms. You don't have to tell you all this. But honestly, I can't think of a more gut-wrenching example than abortion itself, where the ending of the life of the unborn has been recast, not as sin, but as reproductive justice. What must God feel about all of this? What must God feel about our world? I imagine he feels a pretty strong woe. And look, I know that a lot of this conversation is heavy. Point I'm really just trying to make is that much of what we call the culture or the arts or the entertainment or economics or politics or the Western way of life, 
Jesus and his followers always called the world. And they always knew that the world was one of the great enemies of their soul. That if they were allowed themselves to be pulled away by all that it had to offer, that it would lead them to death and destruction. It would not lead them to life. Somewhere along the way, like things that were once wrong and evil have changed and have been recast and redefined as anything but sin. And it doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to the life that Jesus paid for, for you, for me, for our world. Now let me be very, 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 very clear as I get ready to close. I want you to see this thought on the screen. The people of the world are not our enemy, okay? Really important to know that. They are the object of Jesus' love. As Paul wrote, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, including people of differing religions, ethical, or political perspectives. God so loved the people of the world right, that he gave his one and only son. Our fight is not against them. Our fight is for them. That is what we do. That is how we live. We don't live in this sort of uh, new found sort of holy war where we have all of these enemies out there who really are not defined in any way in Scripture as our enemy. They're the object of Jesus' love. But what we have to do is we have to be very careful as followers of Jesus that we don't just allow ourselves to slip into the ways of this world without realizing what's going on and how easy it is to do so. That there are these deceptive lies out there that like we actually want to believe are true and real because they're playing to some disordered desires in our heart somewhere. And somewhere along the way, those disordered ideas that just existed in me started to become normalized in a culture around me, in a sinful society. And it is very easy now for me to just to give myself over to what I want to do and what my flesh wants to do because everybody else is doing it. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is counter to that. It's upside down to that. The way of Jesus goes against the current of a secular society. It, it, it stands as like a beautiful resistance in opposition to being, being taken over or given over to the ways of this world. It's not, it's not a resistance like you would think of, you know, like, like in Star Wars or some military, you know, you know, conquest where we're just, we're resisting, you know, from at a militant level. It's a resistance in terms of like, I'm standing my ground. Like, I'm not going to be pushed off this ledge. I'm not going to be made to just go further down the road and, and allow the moral line of my life to drift and move and shift, you know, like, like so many other people. And so the world is a very active enemy to your soul. And it's one that you have to be very mindful of and aware of so that you can resist its pull. Amen? Would you stand? Would you stand? This is really a two-part series, a two-part message, and next week I'm going to get into really um, how we fight the world a little bit more in depth, and one of the great ways we fight the world, the pull of the world, is uh, through the church, like being a part of the church. It's, next week, you don't want to miss that, but listen, would you just bow your heads with me for a moment? Like, it's, it's only 11.21, so I got time. Like, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. 
I want you just to take a moment right here. And I know, I know you feel it. I want you just to kind of bring yourself before the Lord right here. Just, just open up your heart. Open up your spirit to the Lord, to the Holy Spirit right now. And where are you feeling the gravitational pull of the world? Where have you felt yourself just justify behaviors and things because everybody else is doing it or it's just the way of the world? And let the Holy Spirit just start to reveal things in you right now that, that need to go, that need to be gone, that need to stop. Let him show you where your thinking is wrong or maybe you've followed an ideology. Maybe you have followed a, a way of thinking that is counter to the kingdom of God. It's counter to the way of Jesus. And right now, you just need the Holy Spirit to come and just sort of like wash over you, like renew your mind in Jesus right now. If you've been feeling any of the gravitational pull of the world on you, on your kids, on your family, uh, can I just see your hand in here today? You want some prayer? You want some strength? You've just been seeing it. You're looking, you're watching, and you're like, oh my word, like everything's going to hell. Like, and, and, and you mean that like literally. Father, I pray in Jesus' name in this place. Father, for great protection to happen, for you to put your arms around every young person in this room, every family, oh God, that you would, that you would uh, uh, bring great, great protection. You'd, you'd, you'd hem them in. God, that you would, you would guard their ears, God, from, from, from hearing and believing deceptive lies that, that are just, man, so easy to go along with right now. Give great wisdom to our parents in this room on how to, how to stand firm in the face of a gravitational pull that's taking us down a place where the moral line has been moved and changed. God, give great wisdom and insight to parents on how to, how to walk that line, how to know what is you, what is God, and what is not, where to stand strong, and, 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 and where to be okay. And I know none of this is easy, God, and so we need your Holy Spirit. We need you, O oh God, to lead and to guide, to guide our steps, to fill our mind with your truth, with your thoughts. So every person in this room right now that's just feeling the gravitational pull, Lord, I pray that you would start to just flood them with your truth, with your love. God, I pray that you'd start to give them great wisdom and insight, the ability to spot from a mile away what the enemy's up to, how these deceptive lies are being twisted and turned and playing to the disordered ideas of culture, becoming normalized in our, in our lives, becoming normalized in our schools, becoming normalized in our cities, becoming normalized in the greater culture. And Lord, may it not be true of us. I pray that we would be strong in our faith. We would be strong in our resolve to follow Jesus wherever it takes us, even if it takes us away from what everyone else is doing. God, we serve you today. We worship you today. We give ourselves to you completely today. God, we don't want there to be a part of our heart, a part of our lives that is compromised. God, that is, that is given over to something it shouldn't be given over to. And so come Holy Spirit and have your way. Do your deep work in us so that we can be the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.